0: that's www.beer52.com forward slash WTAF. The following podcast contains strong language, like what the actual fun-
1: Hello there, this is the Reverend Francis Seaton, and you're listening to
0: what the actual
1: fuck? Scarecrow Festival is like the most important idea. What? Daft cow. This is just ridiculous. What
2: the actual
0: fuck? Hey, what the actual effers And welcome to WTAF This Country podcast. Now, first, he's the man that has just come back from looking after the village chickens and was chasing them all around the coop. Now, I would say the punchline, but I have too much respect for our guest. It's Neil.
2: <laughs> Hello, everyone. And it's another <laughs> and lo- it's I'll...
0: another lockdown episode, I should uh, say. So Neil is not sat Absolutely. next to me.
2: And when I when I was looking after the ch- chickens, I made sure there was social distance in between myself and those roosters
0: and so you should and so you should now our superfan guest this episode has had a varied career to say the least in the 80s he was one half of hit-pop combo the communards he has tv and radio presenting on his impressive cv and now he is the vicar of findon northampton there will be no effing and jeffing please as i introduce the reverend richard coles (laughs) hello 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 you
1: can swear as much as you like because i don't understand those words
0: (laughs) well i'm sure as we as we get into it i'm sure we will forget our place and we will be swearing like we normally do so
1: so but you know i can get done for it there's a thing called a clergy discipline measure that could be brought against us for swearing and i have to say i am by most vicar standards quite sweary and i forget myself sometimes and I was—I've uh, had—I've had my wrist slapped a little bit, so I have to be very careful to mind my language. Okay. Isn't that awful, Rebecca. I don't know. <laughs>
2: we'll try our best. It'll be good practice for us, to be honest, Richard. It'll be good <laughs> practice. <Okay.
1: for> us. <laughs> I'm glad to be an inspiring example for you.
0: Oh, absolutely. You are. Indeed, you are. Now, um, we'll start very uh, with the simple question: Is where did you find out about this country, and uh, how did it get on your radar?
1: I don't know, actually, because I'm so not the demographic of BBC3. I think I'm in fact the opposite of the demographic of BBC3, so I wouldn't have come across it by browsing. Somebody must have told me about it. And then the minute I started watching it, I just thought, oh, this is fantastic. And partly because I grew up in a place like their place, and uh, I'm in a place which isn't that different from that place. I know a little bit about what it's like to be a... Uh, young person in somewhere that's, uh, you know, in the middle of England and perhaps a little bit overlooked. And, uh, you know, you think about country villages, don't you? And around my... I live in one. It's lovely around. It's gingerbread houses, it's a beautiful church, it's a nice old vicarage, it's a hall and all that. But most people live in social housing on the other side of the A6. And if they've got a job, it's probably going to be in logistics, in a warehouse on the A14 and the A45. And I think their lives are quite like Kerry and Curtin, so
2: I kind of recognise them. Right. So you must feel like uh, Reverend Francis Seaton, then. What's
1: well, I, I, I would if I were as nice as him, but I'm not. <laughs> nor am I as, as diligent or as patient. So I feel actually quite shabby and hollow whenever I watch Reverend Francis Seaton. I bumped into him in a lift at the BBC the other day, but he was too shy. To Paul Chahidi, the actor who plays him, he was too shy to announce himself to me, and then he tweeted me later. And then we had this weird thing about trying to catch up with each other in Broadcasting House, but we kept missing each other at the seventh floor tea bar. So I've never actually met him, although we am a great admirer.
0: Right, right. So, so uh, as uh, a professional, if you like, how do you feel he does
1: portraying um, a reverend? I mean, he's pretty good, I think. I mean. He, Reverends are obviously stock characters in British comedy but I think there have been a few lately that have been quite close to the mark The Rev in Rev for example played by um, Tom Hollander and I think uh, Francis Seaton is a similar sort of thing The comedy, it's not forced, he's not a caricature he's a real person but he's a type that I think I certainly recognise and I see people like Francis and I work with people like Francis all the time and in a way he's a sort of, I think he's a quiet hero Mm. And uh, an admirable character.
2: Oh, completely. He He's not my favourite character, together. though. Okay. Oh, Richard, who is your favourite character? Big Mandy.
1: Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and wh- why is that? I thought Big Mandy in the reading group, in the book club, was just one of my favourite scenes in the whole series. Um, everyone's got a Big Mandy. I've mm. got a Big Mandy. And uh, she's just. Um, she adds to the kind of rich pattern of life, doesn't she? Does she? Does she know that she's your big Mandy? I don't think she does. I think big Mandys very rarely have the level of self-awareness that they are in fact sociopaths. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> How widely broadcast is this podcast? <laughs> Sorry, say that again. How widely broadcast is this oh, podcast? Oh, all,
0: all over the world, world? all over the, the world. world. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
2: It was only a a few nights ago that we were speaking to somebody in LA.
0: Indeed, really, indeed, yes. So our our reach is far and wide, pretty much like yours. (laughs) You know, it's (laughs) it's everywhere. Um, So you've obviously seen series three. Yeah, I haven't seen the last
1: episode. I'm saving up. Right. Okay. Good job you said that. I know what happens though, because of course immediately it was utterly spoiled by a million spoilers. But I I'm, I'm sort of don't want to say goodbye to it because I've enjoyed the show so much. And I really think it's going to be, I really think it's over. I'd love to think there might be uh, another one. But no, it's like so many great British TV comedies, they they don't last long. And it's probably right that they don't. No.
0: I mean, some, sometimes they can overstay their welcome a little bit, can't they? When you have eight or nine, ten series and it just doesn't seem to work for a British sitcom,
1: I don't think. I know. Uh, Emmerdale, just stale for me now. Right. <laughs> it's
2: been sale since they dropped the farm. <laughs> awesome.
1: I miss
0: Amos.
2: Oh, oh my yeah. god,
0: and, and Mr. Wilkes as well. God. Do you know?
1: Um, do you remember I've the character Nick from Emmerdale? I did a thing the other day and the, the producer of the TV program, the producer turned out to have been the ex-heartthrob Nick in Emmerdale, and they had a sort of weird flashback. I'm not really a soap watcher, but there's a kind of odd periods when I've been into Eastenders or been into Corrie or been into Emmerdale. Actually, truthfully, Hollyoaks, but I'm not not connected anymore. No,
0: no, they seem to repurpose the storylines every so often. Anyway, don't they? It seems to be a hello.
1: A lot of plane crashes in Yorkshire, aren't there? There
0: seems to be. <laughs> there, there definitely seems to be. So, with what you've seen of series three, has it um, is it exceeded your expectations? Was it sort of what you was expecting? Or
1: I think it gets better and better. Right. I think. Uh, I think the relationship between Kerry and Curtin. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because their relationship is so tentative, because they are search. Uh, they're such vulnerable characters, actually. Vulnerable people tend to not form very uh, obvious relationships. And I think it's just so beautifully observed. It's so tender and so sweet and so funny. and so honest, actually. Mm. Neither of them are heroes. But there is something heroic about their endurance with each other. And and they make me laugh all the time. I love Kurt. I think he's just great. I like the way he has to eat a pizza from the middle out. And I like the way... <laughs> He's just obviously a really intelligent guy, who's interested in the world, but his imaginative horizons could be a lot wider. He's just not been lucky, I suppose. And Kerry is just such a familiar person. She reminds me, she's a, like a sort of female Homer Simpson in a 442
2: shirt. I just really <laughs> like
1: that.
0: <laughs> That's actually quite true. That is That is very true.
2: So do all the characters relate to the sort of parish that you're looking after now, then? Is there a lot of the the same characters, like a Len or a...?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a difference. I'm a vicar, you see. So I'm I'm a bit... I'm very like Francis Seaton. I don't... We've parachute into communities. I think the thing about Kerry and Curtin is that they're completely embedded in that community. They are that Mm. community. So Martin and Slugs and all those kind of characters are their peers, Whereas if you're a vicar, you have a sort of slightly more detached relationship to people. But we've certainly got, I mean, we're we're a we're four and a half thousand people, and everyone's a character actually. And scratch the surface of anybody, no matter how unpromising their life might look, um, you'll find all sorts of interest in there, and strangeness, and generosity, and sometimes meanness. And that's why I like being a vicar. I'm nosy. Right. <laughs> you like the gossip? Is that what it is? Well, I always turn a deaf ear to gossip, but I quite like to hear it. Right. Do you know, the funny thing, when I became a vicar, I thought I would be absolutely at the centre of the network of intelligence and the last person to find out what's happening, because people kind of keep it from me until they absolutely can't. So there's something bubbling up that's been going on for years and years, but I don't know about it at all until I do.
0: Right, right. And how do do your... uh your flock, if you want to call it that way, how did they react to having a, in quotes, a celebrity uh, vicar?
1: I think they're a bit mixture of sort of boredom and mild irritation now, I would say. Right, OK. There's sort of slight, slight novelty value from time to time. And they've also actually been very supportive, uh, even of my dancing, which right. uh, took a great act of charity on their part. But... Um, uh, the thing is, all that stuff kind of goes very quickly, maybe it might be, you know, there's sort of novelty interest that lasts for one visit, but after that, you're just people in a place, and you relate mm. to each other unless you, know, you know, to anyone. And I've been here for 10 years now, and uh, I couldn't be happier actually, it's just a wonderful, I love the parish wonderful place to be, I love being vicar here. And uh, we've just been having meetings all day on Zoom because we're coordinating the find and community response, and we're all getting a little bit tangled in the technology in the one of our members
0: said, Why well, don't you just fucking shout out the back door, Midor? So, <laughs> <laughs> and everybody just went, Of course. That's the perfect thing we should be doing. So you said that like, you, you get parachuted into parishes and that. There must be yeah. emotional attachment. Like you say, you've been there 10 years. Same yeah, sort I mean, of this, thing, like, I, like the Reverend in, uh, in this country. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, you do get very. Att- I remember my first parish. And I did when I, when I was a curate. I had two parishes. So I did two years in each parish, which isn't a long stretch, but it's long enough actually to mm. get to know people. Um, and when I left my first parish, it was really emotional. And uh, and I and I because you become part of the life of a place. I then did two years in my second parish, which I loved as well, which was in central London. My first one was was in uh, the far reaches of Lincolnshire, and now I'm in uh, a country parish in in Middle England. But I've been here for ten years, and I'm I've baptised the kids, I've married the parents, usually in that order, and I've <laughs> buried the grandparents, you know, and I've seen the kids through primary school and and uh, it's lovely, I love that. And so, to so leaving, because one day I will leave, it will be very hard to leave people who you've grown to love and become, you know, really fond of.
2: Mm. Mm. Do you get to choose where you go then, Richard, or is it... Yeah.
1: Yeah, pretty much so. I mean, you start your first job you're sent to, and thereafter you're gone for hire. So there's a publication called Church Times or Jezebel's Trumpet, as it's known. (laughs) And uh, in the back page, there's clerical situations. So you look there and they advertise jobs. That's how I found this place. Uh, Although I knew this place already because I grew up around here, so I'm kind of back in familiar territory. And it it was an interesting one for me because I think everyone thought that I would stay in central London where I'd been before. And uh, it would have made a lot of sense to stay in central London. But actually, when I came across this parish, I just had one of those moments of realisation and thought, this would do for me. Mm.
0: So is it a completely different experience having a parish in, say, central London compared to where you are now? Or is it basically the same? Yes and no.
1: I mean, it was um, Knightsbridge, so it was um, it was very posh. we did mean, lots of like posh weddings and posh memorial services, and it was we had a big staff and a professional choir, and the music was lovely, and it was a very Rolls Royce kind of delivery, and uh, and I loved it actually. I really enjoyed it. It was great, wonderful colleagues, and then when I came here, it was very different because we're not a rich parish; we're actually a poor parish, and we don't have any of the kind of luxuries that we were able to afford in the other parish. And also I'm half time because they can't afford to pay um, a full stipend. So uh, it means that I work a lot with, uh, with volunteers to do the stuff we do. Um, but I, I love it, actually. And what we sometimes, you know, we don't have in polish or gloss. We more than make up for it, I think, in uh, sincerity. And, and also it's just really good fun. We have such a laugh. We have, a, we have a church theatre and we do a parish pantomime every year. And I normally do the act two opener, which is when we use our own special effect, which is um, an ultraviolet light. Right. And I come on um, dressed usually as Freddie Mercury from Queen and do an number. Um, and that's probably made more of an impact on my parishioners than anything I've said from a pulpit.
0: So, how has how how that never found its way on YouTube? I'm amazed that
1: nobody has filmed that. Um, super injunctions. That's why they're invented. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, talking about
2: music, then Richard, do you still play? Do you still uh, involved in music at all and write or anything? Yeah, I mean,
1: uh, well, um, church music, of course, all the time. And I started off as a chorister, so before I was ever in bands, I was a church musician. So that's always been my thing. But um, a parishioner of mine died a couple of years ago and um, left me an accordion. So I've actually been learning the accordion, wow. which strikes terror into the hearts of many. But I really,
2: I'm really into it now.
1: Yeah. So, <laughs> just, you know, that might run me up a kind of move guard. I'm not sure we'll see.
2: That sounds like an autobiography title. <laughs> Nip my, bo- move- <laughs> Nip my moves
1: in the bellows. Yeah, <laughs> I can see it already. Yeah, <laughs> you see Ryan Gosling in the title role when he goes to Hollywood. Oh, oh absolutely,
2: absolutely,
0: absolutely. So, um. Let's let's talk a little bit if you don't mind talking about the communards and, and the eighties and sure. how how did that all come about? Because obviously uh Jimmy Somerville was was massive with Bronsky beat. How did uh, how did you two meet?
1: Uh, well we both were gay runaways, you see. So we both Jimmy grew up in the very tough working class part of Glasgow, living in a tenement. And I grew up public school boy in uh, in rural England. So we were completely different. The one thing we had in common was that we were both gay. And in those days, if you were going to do that, you needed really to sort of run away and start a new life. So we both arrived in London at the same time, living around King's Cross. And we got to know each other. And we kind of formed a little kind of group of friends. And we started a little club night in a pub. And then um, Jimmy just happened to have one of the most extraordinary voices of the decade. And I was Mm. lucky because I was just able to hitch my wagon to him, really. Mm. and, uh, and uh, the rest was sort of uh, pop history.
0: Mm. So Absolutely. When, you, when, when things like, I mean, obviously, the, the famous hit was uh, Don't Leave Me This Way. Yeah. Do, do you decide that you want to do that song, or does the record company come up and say, look, we think this might be a good song for you two to do? No,
1: no it's Jimmy's idea. Jimmy, see, I have all the kind of popular feel of um, a badger. It's not really my thing at all. I've never really had a sense about what touches people, what what oppresses their buttons, whereas Jimmy is a real natural gift for uh, understanding pop music. And when he was growing up, he had an auntie who married a GI, and then their marriage broke down, and she came back to Glasgow from, I think it was Florida, but she brought with her a pile of Motown records, and Jimmy was close to her. And so he grew up listening to the great classics of Motown and um, loved them. And uh, I was always more a bit of a sort of dilettante, really. And I grew up listening to the piano concertos of Mozart, which didn't have quite the same pop appeal. Mm. (laughs)
0: Mm. Not quite. (laughs) Not really. And I have to say, um, For a Friend was one of my favourite songs of the 80s. That was a beautiful song. I love that song
1: thank
0: yeah, you
1: yeah well we write that it was a very heartfelt song for mm.
0: us yeah i like it too yeah yeah so you must have um uh, appeared on top of the pops numerous times oh yes so what yes. was your what yes. was your whole experience of top because I've, I've said this before on a podcast when we spoke to claire sturgis i listened to a podcast where they take an episode of top of the pops and then strip it down and say what they think about it and it seems that what we see on screen is nothing compared to what it's like to actually appear on Top of the Pops. Would you agree No, with that? I mean,
1: it's very weird. The first, the weirdest thing, and most obvious thing, is that it's not, it's a tiny studio. Mm. So, I remember, see Top of the Pops look like a kind of big disco. It's not at all. It was a tiny studio, and they kind of shoved the crowd around, and the cameras were always shoving people out the way. So that was odd. The other odd thing about it was, because it was such an important show for bands for records for record companies, um, if you got a slot on it, you did it. But it meant that you would have these kind of extraordinary collisions where you would have, I don't know, kind of Renee and Renata on with The Cure mm. or, mm. you know, the, the Smiths on with Glenn Medeiros. So there were these really odd kind of collisions of culture. And the weirdest thing, because it was the BBC, it was all felt a little bit like going to the job centre. So backstage, you kind of queued up for a styrofoam cup of coffee for 20p I think it was Madonna or somebody like that who obviously, she was just starting out but she obviously didn't really like the idea of having a queue for a cup of coffee, which she did. Um, But the other thing about it was because Top of the Pops was watched by 15, 16, 17 million people Mm. and uh, and if you were on it, um, it was the making of your career very often. Mm. Um, And of course I'd watched it as a boy um, and... You know, it was kind of obligatory viewing. Half past seven, I think, on a Thursday night, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, and all of a sudden, to be on it was
2: was was kind of exciting. Yeah, it must have been. What sort of music were you listening to growing up then, Richard? Yourself. Bach. Yeah.
1: So I listened to uh, a lot of Bach, a lot of Mozart, uh, a lot of church music as a chorister when I was a kid first time i've kind of became aware of pop music i think it was hot chocolate Emmeline. i bought that record i remember i don't know why and then at school as i got a bit older then i was of that generation we just caught the end of the kind of prop rock or the sort of concept album thing so pink floyd dark side of the moon that was a big thing king crimson that was a big thing super mm. tramp mm. um but I was never really that interested. Really, I was always much more interested in classical music than in pop music until I came to London. And then I kind of re- I discovered dance music in particular, pop music because it was the kind of music of liberation. It was the music of the dance floor, the music of the pub and the club, and that's where our lives began. So for me, they became sort of anthems. Really, mm. um, occasionally now a record will sort of jump out and bite me, but not very often. No, would things like Top of the Pops then?
0: Steer you to certain types of music because it was it was such. I mean, I don't think youngsters makes it sound really old, but youngsters realised quite how big Top of the Pops was as a as an avenue to listen to and to see music.
1: I think it was good for pop music because it was because it introduced acts to a wide audience who otherwise wouldn't. And if you were a band like the Smiths, for example, you know you were playing in Manchester to a very kind of elite sort of audience really but top of the pops all of a sudden radio one put that music within the reach of a mass audience and so you've got a really fantastic band we're doing really interesting creative and original things and a really captivating and sometimes exasperating person like Morrissey mm. um uh, you know found a found a big audience and I think it's it's tough now because to have that sort of exposure means you've probably come through one of the heavily formatted shows like The x or whatever. And that produces quite a, a kind of homogenous uh, product. And it's an exercise in marketing. And you don't quite have the... I don't know. What do I know? I don't want to talk about There's lots of stuff that people are making in their bedrooms, I think, and downloading onto the internet, which is Fantastic. I just probably don't know what it is. Punk was a big thing for me when punk came along, it went off like a ball, mm. and uh, I'd love something like that to happen again. Maybe it is happening, I don't know.
2: Maybe you um, could uh invent your own genre, Richard.
1: Too old, too fat, you're now. <laughs> oh, yeah, yay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's that, is, is that that's,
0: that's, that's the, the second title of your bi- biography <laughs> <laughs> too old too fat too knackered
2: but yeah, oh, that, it sounds like mine actually yeah mine. <laughs> I think everybody's um, do you still write music then Richard no actually I don't. Know. I was um, never very
1: good at it the communard's biggest hits were always cover versions which tells me something about my songwriting ability um, I love playing actually I like being an audience too I've never I've never sort of felt the need to be a sort of uh, great creative genius, really. I'm, I've always been audience sympathetic listener, really. Mm-hmm. I love, I love going to things. I love going to them to hear music. I love going to the opera. I love going to concerts, whatever, Um, and just sitting there and, and listening. Mm. I don't feel, I don't. You know, that's that's actually, a, I think it's kind of to be serious about being the audience for something is good. It's one of the reasons why I like this country so much, too. It, it brings out it's got a good audience,
0: you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, that was
2: going to be my oh, oh, sorry, I was going to say that was going to be my suggestion. Maybe a This Country musical, Richard, you see.
1: Oh, thank God, it would be good, wouldn't it? I just really, really want Sue to have the lead singing role in it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. it you really really never cool. see
2: her, just from the off stage, Just <laughs> screaming from downstairs. You, just singing, just from singing some
0: Sex Pistols. would Singing punk. That's what you want. It Sue singing really punk.
1: Good. But everything Sue could sing, Green Sleeves, and it would be punk. It? Yeah, <laughs> that would be true. That would
0: be true. But then, uh, is that I don't know, is that in the this, this series? Yeah, if it's Green Sleeves, and that means you have Slugs shagging Kaylee <laughs> in green to Green Sleeves, as he says in the series. I apologise, <laughs> Richard. I'm terribly sorry. I've let ourselves down. Right. Twenty four no, minutes in. I, don't, I
1: know. We were doing so well. We were doing then. so well.
0: Oh, I don't know. Anyway, what was I going to say? <laughs> Neil, Neil, give us another do question.
2: You know, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, Sue as a character is probably the funniest thing and one of the funniest characters in the show. And it's so good that you don't see it. What other characters do you really like, then?
1: Well, obviously, Big Mandy is a huge yeah. one for me. I love Len. Um, I kind of like Martin for just being the most satanically evil bastard in any sitcom that I can think of, if you think of this country as a sitcom mm. but his his utter psychopathic failure of any emotional integrity at all, particularly in his dealings with Kerry, uh, it's a character to i think there's something really reminds me of a character almost' from Shakespeare i mean I do think there is something quite Shakespearean about it because you know there is a sort of Emptiness at the heart of Martin Mucklow, which is really quite startling. I think. Mm. Do you know what I mean?
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've all we've always wondered how somebody can be, like like you say, sort of evil, but he's watchable and he's I don't know. It's it's a very complex character and amazingly played by by Paul Cooper. For someone ha- their
1: dad, isn't he?
0: That's right. And In he's had life. no no acting. Um, like coaching or anything, it's all like naturally done.
1: It does. It does make you wonder, doesn't it? Because I, I look at—I um, I don't know—I've never seen either Daisy May or I can't remember his name, Charlie. Charlie, yeah. I've—I've I've never seen them in real life. I've only ever seen the show and them in character. And uh, I can't imagine. I don't know. It's brilliant. The kind of. The peculiar genius about that programme. The the way they managed to get on screen with such intelligence and subtlety and lightness of touch, the kind of dramas of lives which other people would look at and not even notice, I think. Mm. The pathos Mm. of that is very powerful, and the comedy too. Yeah, yeah. It's art of the highest quality, I think. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah,
2: yeah. completely agree.
0: Absolutely. So once uh, the communards sort of finished and that, how did you, what was the reason to sort of move into religion?
1: Well, um, turbulence, really. So I kind of crashed and burned coming out of pop music like everybody. I went to Ibiza in the summer of 1990. I don't remember much about it. Right. But when I came back, I sort of realized I sort of had to get a grip. I had a lovely time. But it was, shall we say, unsustainable, um, and it was sort of while I was trying to find my feet at the end of that that um, I kind of just wanted to go to church again, because I'd grown up with it, and I think I was sort of looking for something that this was life for me. I got a bit disconnected from my origins, from my roots. It happens a lot, I think, to gay people of my age and background. We kind of run away to big cities, and life begins when we're you know eighteen, nineteen, twenty. And I wanted to. I just became a bit more curious about my childhood and background, and that came with it. So I just started wandering into churches, just to sit back and feel. Um, sort of, uh, I don't know. I, I wasn't interested. I, I, I like. I sort of liked it, but I also rationally thought it was a complete load of old cotton, and so it was a slightly weird feeling. But eventually, I began to think. It was really much more uh, my natural habitat than I thought it had been. And then once I kind of realised that, um, it came very quickly then, and I sort of settled into it. Hmm.
2: Is that? Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I have to ask, is being gay and being a vicar, is has is that been a challenge in itself as well?
1: No, not for me no. at all. I mean, it's probably a challenge for other people, um, but that very rarely actually interferes with... Or you know comes across my experience. Sort of most of the time, I find people just very accepting. Um, and I came to this parish with my partner, who's, who's since died. Um, but everyone—I mean, the thought of a gay vicar and another gay vicar as partners in finding—I think would have been a big, uh, a big jump not that long ago. Mm. But, you know, the world has changed an awful lot in the past 30 years. And actually, people completely took us to their hearts. And, uh, and, uh, it was, and also, of course, we weren't the only gays in the village. Nobody's <laughs> ever the only gay in the village. No. So it wasn't as if we came along and it was all entirely out of people's experience. Do you find that things I like... Mean, the church oh, has, sorry, carry on. As we say, the church has a problem with it sometimes, or some you know, bits of the church has a problem with it sometimes. But, you know, we are just try to deal with that with as much
0: good grace as we can muster. Mm. With, I was going to say is with, with um, people's changing views on on religion and on um, sexuality and things like that, also with technology, do you find that that helps with being a vicar or does that hinder with the fact that, that a lot of people stay at home? I mean, obviously, as we're recording this, people have to stay at home because of the uh, coronavirus. But does technology yeah.
1: help or hinder um, religion? Well, it kind of, I mean, funny enough, religion or Christianity has u- usually been an early adopter of new technology. I mean, the book, the codex, the book formula, pages bound in between to, in, you know, a cover, that was sort of popularised by Christianity. When radio first got going, the church got behind that. Printing, of course, the church got behind that. And in spite of um, our... Perhaps people would think of us as being a rather fuddy-duddy sort of organisation. Actually, there's lots of people who are very tech-savvy in it. I wouldn't include myself in that at all. But I'm a, I'm a big, heavy user of social media. Lots of my uh, active ministry, I suppose, has kind of happened in a public way on social media,
0: mm-hmm. insofar
1: as you can call that a ministry. Um, and I, I enjoy it. It works for me pretty much. And it means you can kind of... I don't know. Just build networks of relationships with people that I don't think would otherwise happen for for a country parson, I believe.
0: And is that is that so, is that vital in in like these times that we're, we're living in at this moment to be able to keep in touch with your parishioners and uh, and
1: and your parish? Well, yeah, it's really interesting because there's a big divide about that. You know, uh, the the younger members of my parish we. We, we use FaceTime, we use Zoom, we use WhatsApp, we use Facebook, all that kind of stuff. The older members of the parish um, probably don't, although actually more and more silver surfers, I think. Right. Although actually I'm a silver surfer now. Yeah. And that obviously changes the way we relate. But the thing I like about this parish in particular is a very face-to-face culture. We're small, but very coherent. We don't really pay much attention to what happens in Burton Latimer which is two miles down the road or Earthling Borough which is two miles down the road because Findon is obviously the centre of the universe and there's enough going on here to keep us all um, busy and occupied but it's a, it's a classic model really so on the one hand you've got you know to sort of connect to the world through doing things like this and through media but on the other hand I'm vicar of a very traditional country parish where we all know each other in its first name terms it's the cricket club. It's the school. It's the library. It's the panto, um, and uh, you know I'm I'm the 59th vicar of Finden. Um, the first one we know about was a bloke called Geoffrey who came in 1217, which is about 803 years ago. And uh, I'm sitting in church sometimes on my own early in the morning saying morning prayer, and I realise that what I'm experiencing. It's really not that different from what Geoffrey experienced 803 years ago. And that's an interesting
2: feeling. Mm. Indeed. I, Indeed. I, I was going to also ask, you do the pause for thought on Radio too, usually yeah. on a Friday, Friends on Friday, which isn't going on. How do you write those sort of pause for thoughts to make it accessible to everybody? You see what I, mean? I mean, I just write what what comes to mind,
1: really. And I think people think vicars live very sort of sequestered, cloistered, removed lives. because we don't, actually. If you want to know what's really happening in places, ask the vicar, because we're at the heart of communities, at all communities, and we're a network. So we talk to each other. So in a way, we were sort of doing a... We were sort of networking in a way that social media would recognise... Uh, long before the technology that we do it with today existed. So we do tend to, and also the other thing is that, you know, people, when people, often people come to us when their lives have got a bit messy. So we know a little bit or quite a lot sometimes about how tough life can be for people sometimes and about how, you know, people don't always have room to make good choices because of things that have happened to them or they're caught in dilemmas which are impossible to solve. And I think that makes you sympathetic and tolerant and I hope not too often um surprised by by people. No, that's true. I'm always surprised by people, but normally by their goodness rather than
2: their mm. badness. Although occasionally you get badness. Mm. And and being on the Friends Around Friday, I take it you are there with them all. Yes. Have you met anybody uh, you've been starstruck with yet? Well, I'm I remember
1: doing one once, and I was a bit, I've been, a bit a bit lackadaisical. I hadn't really done my homework. It was when Chris was doing it. And um, I turned up, and I sat next to this bloke, and he was wearing a cap, and he had a sort of coat and scarf on. It was the winter. And I said hello, and he went, hello, sir. He was sort of a polite sort of way, and I went, hello. we had to chatted a little bit on a record play. And then it came to me and I did my piece. And then at the end, I noticed that it was George Clooney. Oh. Um, but, but, I, but you'd get that on that show sometimes because it's such a, uh, you know, uh, all the kind of A-listers, if they're in town, tend to do that show. So you meet lots of film stars and people like that. But, of course, I'm of an age now where I'm not entirely sure who the film stars actually are. You're right. And uh, I thought somebody was a film star, but who's actually the man who had come to change the paper towels in the lavatory. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so to that, just going back to Top of the Pops as well, so, like, your musical heroes, did you get to meet any of those while you were uh, walking around the halls of BBC?
1: Well, I did. Not so much. The thing is, if you're doing, if you're in a pop band, um, you tend to... Do your thing if you see what I mean, and the, the, the other bands around are your competitors. So there tends to be sometimes quite a bit, a bit of sort of um, professional distance. Mm-hmm. The Mantra Pop Festival—that you do something like Mantra or Midem or the New Music Festival, where you get lots of bands in one place at one time, and that was kind of interesting because you just every time you turned a corner you'd see um, someone you'd only known as a legend or something, and then occasionally you would meet. Meet your heroes, although it's sometimes a bit disappointing to meet a hero. I think. For
0: instance, is there any names you'd like to, to let us know about?
1: Well, I'd probably um, save that for fat and old and knackered, or whatever. My biography is going to be cool. I did meet some people, but I remember meeting Ray Charles once, and I spent the afternoon with Ray Charles, and he was just fantastic. And uh, you know. I had to sort of pinch myself and think I'm sitting here talking to Ray Charles. Yeah. And, uh, and another person I met who made a big impression on me was Curtis Mayfield. and I was in Atlanta. And uh, anyway, went to see Curtis Mayfield after his His He was quadriplegic. And uh, he was living in his kind of mansion in this sort of posh end of Atlanta. And uh, he was just such a lovely, lovely man and handled his... Extraordinarily heavy burden of disability with such good grace and gentleness. And and he was lovely. And he was a sort of hero. Mm.
0: Oh, that's lovely. Right, we're gonna play a little game, if that's okay with you, Richard. Uh we're gonna play Kerry or Curtain. So I'm gonna give you a line of dialogue, and you need to tell me if it was Kerry or Curtain. Wow, okay. Here we go. Number one. I said I wouldn't stoop down to her level but I can't be sitting around waiting for karma to do its business.
1: God, I want to say curtain.
0: Is that your answer? Curtain. Correct. That was in the letter from Slugs. That was when he was going to go and dob, Uh, dob carry in. Number two. I don't really want to be at home at the moment, so I just really want to go somewhere where I feel really welcome. Curtain that was Kerry oh. that was when uh, when martin was uh, that was in cynthia episode when martin was living back at uh, Kerry's house so she felt she had to she had to go question okay. number 3 why don't you give me some of your crusts oh um that's curtain that's Kerry In Oven Space. I
1: love that episode. Because Curtin
0: had the pizza and Kerry had the um, turkey dinosaurs. And she wanted some. Right, Number four. After six months, he finally found out how to do it. And all he could bang on about was how his kids had been left in the jungle. Curtin. That was Kerry in Oven Space again, talking about the monkeys.
1: Well, oh, yeah. I'm only just going to say curtain now. My theory is that they're getting okay.
0: half right. Okay, last last, wrong. last one is that the, is that that position still going for fastest in the gang? That's
2: curtain.
0: That is curtain. Well done. Yeah. So that we well got the, like the first one and the last one. So two out of five. That's not too bad.
2: That's still respectable. That Richard. We've respectable.
0: had a few zero. So that's still respectable. Yeah, we've had a few zeros. So uh, so that was that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Um, well, delighted. So, so when we obviously the future um, at the moment, who knows what is going to happen um, in the future? Yeah. But when it comes to, to yourself, do you feel there's a certain time that you need to spend in a parish or do you feel that you know when a time is right to
1: move on? No, I don't really know. I mean, I've, uh, I've, after 10 years, um, people in this parish stay for a long time. We had in the 19th century, there were two vicar's father and son. Who were vicars for hundred and one years? Wow! The uh, the the son was vicar for sixty two years. Um Now I'm too old to give that kind of level of service, but I wouldn't want to go anywhere else. I would want to retire one day, though. So um although my church being pension is probably going to be, I don't think it'll buy me an orange really, but we'll see.
0: And how does that work when you yeah. when you retire? Do you retire in at the parish that you are, or? Just wherever you want well, to go. wherever
1: I mean, retirement is 67 or 60, is going up to 68, I think, compulsory, but I might go before then because I'm very lucky because, because of pop music and a brilliant manager. I'm in the unusual position for a clergyman of having a pension that should provide for me. Mm. So um, I would quite like to spend some time doing nothing. Right. <laughs> Apart from writing well, your two autobiographies, of course. Well, I've, I've sort of done that already. I mean, there's a couple of books that are in the part, Well, I'm more just finishing one at the moment. I've got another one to do, and I enjoy that. But do you know what I really want to do? I love, I'd love. i like just to walk around looking at stuff. So I'm quite enjoying about being in lockdown. I took the dog's out this morning, and I went to get forage for nettles to make some nettle soup, because that's what I do. And, uh, and of course there's nobody around, it's dead quiet. Mm. And... Occasionally you see other people in the distance walking their dogs. But I just kind of wandered through the fields with the dogs and I stopped my picked some nettles to bring home. Uh, always wear gloves, people. Um, and uh, I watched some red kites and uh, the dogs kind of run around a bit, sniff stuff like they do. And
2: actually I'm very content just doing that. Mm. Peaceful. Very peaceful, it sounds. Yeah. So as I was speaking, Richard, you haven't seen the final episode of Series 3 that you said. Yeah. Um, Daisy and Charlie have both said that they wouldn't be against doing a special in the future if, if needs must. What would you like to see in a special? What, what situation haven't you seen that you'd like to see them in? I'd like to see one of them get a lucky break and it not to
1: fail. Mm. I'd like to see something really good happen to, well, actually, happen to both of them. But I'd really like to see them all of a sudden discover that they, you know, that they are entitled to get more than what they settle for. Because I think, I notice it around here a lot, a lot of people like Kerry and Curtin don't really expect to get very much out of life. And I would love them to discover more than they thought they would have. That would be great. Mm. Well, that sounds... That sounds lovely. <laughs> it
2: sounds like Francis Seaton, doesn't that it? That
0: was. That was right out of Francis right. Seton's book. That was that was amazing. It's um it's it's one of those shows that you feel that like you say, every time something good happens to one of them, it's sort of like life balances it out and gives them something
1: that's not so good as well. Or that there's some failing in them that... Yeah means that if they don't realise an opportunity is ahead of them because they've never had an opportunity before, and they don't know what to do with it. I mean, just, you know, Kerry at the recycling centre just kind of makes a sort of mess of things, or Curtin at the bowls club, and circumstances just conspire against them, and, and they're back where they started. You see, they're always back, back where they started, aren't they? Mm. Unlike Francis, who, of course, uh, he has choices that they don't have.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, didn't Kurt, wasn't Kurt going to
1: go and do an HND in social care? Yeah, he was a, a, a
0: GMVQ. That was at the, the last episode of the first series. Yeah, but he seemed to right. he seemed to like make excuses. But I think he, for me, it seemed like he lost his bottle. He didn't want to go.
1: Yeah, which yeah, which yeah. is why I think the prospect of the vicar going is such. It would be so devastating for them because. He exercises a choice that neither of them are likely to get. Mm. Mm.
0: But then there's no the, the, the guarantee that the, the next vicar that comes in would be lovely, and they yeah. would, they would learn more from that particular vicar.
1: It would still be the same, though, would it?
0: I don't think it would, no. No. no maybe they need to move to Bristol. Bristol? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe um richard thank you so much for spending some time with us it's been a real pleasure to speak pleasure. to you it really has thank you um no, i've enjoyed
1: it too thank you
0: both thank you good luck with everything uh good luck with your nettle soup if you're
2: going to go and make some more of yeah, that. thank you um, and also Richard, please let us know what you think of the final episode yes
0: Oh, I will do. I'll tweet you. Yes, absolutely. And um, please stay safe. Don't forget to wash your hands. Yeah. Uh, stay two metres away from everybody. will <laughs> do my best. Um, Thank you so much. Neil, do you want to do a little bit of housekeeping before we say our final yes. goodbyes?
2: Of course I will. You can find us on all the social media under WTAF This Country. We have our own website, which is wtafpodcast.com and please, if you've got any questions or anything you'd like to ask, email us at uh, WTAF this Country. hotmail.com
0: Wonderful, and please come and be a Patreon bozo uh, and help support the podcast, just go to patreon.com forward slash WTAF We now have our limited edition WTAF uh, enamel pins that are there for a certain amount a month, uh, just for $1 a month, uh, just to help pay for all the stuff and so that we can keep doing this, uh, we will be uh, much obliged if you help us out with that. Thank you once again Richard, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you Thank you very much, Neil. Thank you. Thank you very much, Neil. Cheers, mate. Thank you very much. Bye-bye, everyone. And we'll see you again. And go and get plumbed, you effers. There you
1: go. Scarecrow Festival is like the most important day of the year. What? Daft cow? This is just ridiculous. What
2: the
1: actual...
0: Hi, I'm Pav. And I'm Neil. We're here to tell you about our new exciting project, the Top 10 of Anything Podcast.
2: Phenomenal.
0: That's right, Neil. We grab a guest or two. Pick a subject, then bring our own top tens to the pod. Yes. It could be top ten scary movies, top ten swear words, top ten breakfast foods, anything. Ooh, you
2: saucy devil.
0: Indeed, Neil. Our first episode will be online very soon, so subscribe on all your usual podcast platforms so you don't miss it. Yes. The top ten of anything podcast. Let's begin the countdown.
2: Phenomenal.